What we're testing down there is the um, issue of artistic freedom of expression, you know, and it, it's a significant issue, and uh, the trial is very interesting. Is that in process now? Right. And hopefully it'll be over in time for me to uh, do a European tour. But if not, it might go on for weeks, months. Welcome to Opening the Doors, a podcast dedicated to the doors, everything in between. I'm your host and special guest. Uh, you heard him on we on the episode where we talked about his collection. We went in depth on some of that and uh, just uh, what a collection it is. And we are talking about one of the shows that is in his collection and one show that he wanted to talk about for the upcoming anniversary, Bakersfield. So without further ado, Michael Papasino. Michael, how are you doing today, man? Good. Feeling better. You know, just enjoying the summer. And it's good. I needed this summer. Just I've been posting and adding a lot of stuff to my doors collection. It's been so much work. Like I, I posted, it took me almost a week just to just to organize my LPs. Forget about the reels and everything else. Because I wanted to get my uh, LPs ultrasonically cleaned. But, you know, it, it's a passion of love. And I'm always adding to the collection. And, you know, it's like Jim said, more, more, more. I'm always searching for new stuff. It's a good escape from reality. It helps me relax. And I can talk about this band forever. And you know, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you again. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. And you've been posting, doing some really great short little videos for YouTube. Uh, do you want to plug that? And t- tell us a little bit about that, uh, man. I haven't actually put on YouTube yet. I got... Or um, Facebook, I'm sorry. Yeah, those are... Uh, I got one of them. Up. I just call it Doors Chat. You know, I make it clear I was inspired by you. Uh, the first one, I just gave a history of um, a Doors radio segment. They were on a show called The In Sound with the New York DJ, Harry Harrison, very famous on CBS and ABC Radio, etc. Last year, I found two rare, albeit brief, phone conversations he has on the radio with Raymond Zarek. I played one of them. Unfortunately, my speaker and my record player cut out a little bit, so I'm going to repost that. And now that I'm feeling better, I just got over a cold. I'm going to post another episode this week with the other episode. They're both from October 67. And they're rare. You know, if you check that episode out, I make a point that on the excellent Mild Equator site, they have four of the seven segments. I found two of the ones they didn't have. In brief, you know, they're just short phone conversation, but it's just a joy to find new stuff. And I'm just going to be posting clips about what I feel like stuff that I get in my collection. It's you know, not for profit or anything. I just enjoy doing it. You know, I just love talking about the band. And, you know, I'm not as smooth a deliverer as you are, but I'm going to do my best. Um, I think I made a joke in the video. I think I compared you to Johnny Carson. Yeah. Like, delivery. 
and putting me at ease. But yeah, I'm going to put more clips up. And, you know, one idea I floated, I want to start asking people about just members of some of the groups. They want to come on, you know, talk about stuff in their collection on the doors and spine. I think if people in the group see other people in the groups, you know, for real on video, see the faces, not just hear the voices. Yeah. You know, just a lot of directions to have with it. And I'm excited about it. It's going to be cool. Yeah. And Michael, something else I think you're excited about. And by the way, thank you for the compliment. I really enjoyed it. And I'm not just telling people to go check this out. I think that you are one of the collectors. Man, and, and and this is a little bit of a sidebar, and I'm sorry for going off on this. There's col- there is there are collectors, man, who they they're stodgy and they hold up and they just want everything for themselves and they hold it in. And I understand there's things in your collection like, hey, if I live, if I put this out there, it loses its value. That's a different story. But to be like, hey, I'm not going to show stuff in my collection because it's mine and I deserve it and and all this. I feel I feel like that that mentality is is sort of. You know, it's a it's negative, man. It brings people down, and I'm glad that you were able to get this stuff, and you're out there, you know, exhibiting it and showing it, man. That's that's really cool, uh, and I really yeah. appreciate it, man. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, I would say with me, that's like about ninety nine percent accurate. I was talking to a friend the other day about this. In my entire collection, I'd say there's only maybe one or two things that I really keep to myself, but everything else. Yeah, I tried to um, share. I mean, I would say well, a few exceptions would be some of my copyrighted photos, but I might share them someday. We'll see how it goes. But, yeah, you know, I post pictures of stuff I get, like the reels I got a few days ago, yeah. copies of Mr. Dubs. I can't wait to hear those. It's, it is sad. Some collectors hoard things forever, but, it's it's the way it is you know i just i try to be a good person and just indulge my passion and just um a quick plug or two before yeah go ahead again um just want to give a quick shout out not only to um bradley and my friends in the doors undoable pleasure prolonged group but also to the excellent ship of fools website the doors fanatics there uh, Jenna Karen Ravel, Wendy Bachman, and Paul Neal do a fantastic job. I love that site. And also Jim Morrison Fans Global, the administrators there, Vivian Morrison and Grace Ayana. So those are the three groups I'm in and just great people. And just want to give a shout out to them. If they listen to this, to your audio or watch the video, give us some feedback some ideas for future shows, please. Yeah. And speaking of, uh, you know, you talked about you're excited about collecting. And one thing I bet you were excited about was back in 2005 when you got Bakersfield and take us back to finding Bakersfield. How did you get this show? Uh, what, what were your first impressions of the show when you got it? It was known that a few collectors had it. And then what eventually happens is one of the higher-end collectors uses it as trade bait and eventually filters out. So the the collector I got it from, you know, I had some radio shows at the doors they didn't have. So this person said to me, you know, if you copy up, I think it was like eight or ten radio shows, I'll cut loose with a copy of Bakersfield. It was a lot, it was still good sounding. An upgrade became available later. I said, yeah, sure. You know, you know I've known it exists. I'd love to hear it. And, and I finally got it. 
you know, one of the last ones they did with Jim. Yes. And speaking of the show, uh, let's give a little background to the venue of the show. So the venue, uh, the Bakersfield Civic Auditorium, still currently is at 1001 Truxton Avenue in Bakersfield. And this was put on by West Coast Promotions. And it was a, the, the Civic Auditorium was originally constructed in, I think, 62. I think they're trying to attract some of the convention trade to the city. And the first show in the audit, auditorium was Ice Capades. And I know growing up, especially early, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, Ice Capades used to be a huge thing. I don't know how much of it. I think a lot of that might have been replaced or sort of has morphed into like Disney on Ice and stuff. But uh, Ice Capades used to be a big thing. I think they even did a, a whole halftime show of Ice Capades for one of the Super Bowls. The 1992 Super Bowl 26 halftime spectacular. Winter magic. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we proudly salute the 1992 Winter Olympics as we welcome Olympic gold medalists Dorothy Hamill, Brian Voitano, and team captain Mike Caruzioni with members of the 1980 Olympic gold medal hockey team. Wow. The first show was on November 20th, 1962. And it was one of Bakersfield's real first buildings that was constructed in this modern style. You know, the 60s were moving into this sort of different uh, architectural structure and stuff. And in addition to housing like communities and musical groups, uh, such as the Bakersfield Symphony Orchestra, it also contained a scenery loft and an orchestra pit to facilitate Broadway musicals and ballets. A pretty cool little venue. This is definitely a departure from the the bigger venues. You know, I know the Doors played like the Singer Bowl in 68 and played Madison Square Garden in 69. This is a smaller capacity venue, so it holds about 3,000 people. Not a huge venue, but I think that's more intimate. I think it, it leads to a better show as well, overall. They had experienced problems the year before, January 69, when they played on Madison Square Garden, the acoustics. Those trainers said they were a nightmare, you know, especially for those far away really couldn't hear the band clearly. That's why at the beginning of 70, they went back to New York to the Forum. Yeah, those smaller venues, just the acoustics were better. Yeah, and Bakersfield would lead into absolutely. Yeah, and in 1998, uh, there was a huge expansion made. A 10,000-seat uh, sports arena was built adjacent to the convention center, and the venues were combined and renamed the Centennial Garden and Convention Center I think eventually it did go revert back to the Bakersfield Convention Center, but, you know, ended up sort of morphing along. But, let's you know, getting into the rock history of it, just a brief rock history, the Beach Boys were really the first big group to play the auditorium. They played it in 62 and 64, and they played it twice in 65. And other notable performers around this time also include Johnny Cash and Jefferson Airplane in 67. And in 68, the Doors performed here for the first time, and it was June 8th. And I think that same year, uh, Sonny and Cher performed there in March, and then Jimi Hendrix Experience came for two nights in October. And Buffalo Springfield was the last group to play the venue. I think they played on December 20th of 68, and that was the last band to perform there. All through, There wasn't anybody who performed there in 69, and a majority of 1970, no bands performed there until we have the Doors who performed there which is the show we're getting into, and the only and the, and the only other band to play that year with the Doors was the Beach Boys. It they, oh. for whatever reason they played again in 1970, but they they oh. they did that perform that venue. Let's see, what is that five times? You know, over the course of a 
of the of the 60s into 1970. But yeah, so I think that's a little bit on the venue. Let's set the stage for this. So we know the Doors are playing Bakersfield. What happened before that? In those first eight months or so of 1970, you know, it was clear that things had changed. I mean, even, you know, hardcore Doors fans have to admit they weren't the same band they were in 67, 68. It's like, Miami's the demarcation line. You got pre-Miami, post-Miami. And, you know, I don't want to say they were shot in 1970. They, they put on some good shows earlier in the year, some that were recorded for absolutely live, like Philly, Pittsburgh, which I contributed some photos for, Detroit, Boston. It seems they started in the Felt Forum in January on the East Coast. They played Winterland for the last time, Long Beach Arena. Then they were on the East Coast for a while. Cleveland, a show, one of which surfaced on a cassette tape. Good show. They did one in Honolulu, but other than that, it was East Coast earlier in the year. By the summertime, you know, the trial was about to start. Unfortunately, it was getting harder to schedule shows because they were he has to judge good many. Once the trial in Miami started, um, you know, they had Seattle on June 5th. I think it's the worst door show we have on tape. That was the one Jim worshipped the feedback gods and just kept playing with his microphone. Uh, not, not good. But then Vancouver the following night was good, like midnight release. Then after Vancouver, June 6th, the band was on break. Again, Jim was on trial. He had a meet with um, his attorney, Max Fink. You know, the band members had to testify. So things were kind of on hold. And I just think it's important to understand, as the band walked on stage on August 21st, 1970, almost 53 years to the day, you know, the band's frame of mind was Jim's frame of mind, you know, both mentally and Basically, as we get into the show and we talk about the individual tracks and all, I just want to stress a reason I wanted to focus on the show and I was so happy you agreed with me. I firmly believed, and if collectors, listeners want to disagree, feel free to. I think in some ways this was their last garage. I don't think it's much of an exaggeration to say that this was the last really good show the Doors did with Jim. Thank God Vince Trainer taped it. Even though Jim's vocals not quite as strong and strident as in the early days, he seems reasonably sober and focused. Doing some improvisational bits we'll get into. Ray, Robbie, and John are just in top form. Like they always... You know, yeah. I, I've never I've never read a story about a, a door show being poor because Ray was drunk and was slumping over the keyboards, or John couldn't play the drums, or Robbie was out of it. You know, it was other technical issues with Jim, but you know, this night, I think the band pulled it together and was a very interesting set list with some great improvisations. You mentioned, you know, you talked about it already. The last show they performed was in Vancouver, June 6th. And this is a long layoff between 
the last time, you know, that time and then the next time Jim performs here in Bakersfield, I mean, what, June, July, August, you know, over two months here. So, so I think there's a, that long layover. And during this time, there's a lot of things that happen in the trial. Uh, there's a couple of things. I just want to pull a couple of things from the mild equator site just to, just to yeah, mention sure. that I think are, are sort of interesting points of reference. On June 9th, we have Max Fink. He fly, he files a motion that Jim Morrison's case is to be dropped on the base, on the base grounds that his conduct is outside their jurisdiction. The motion is rejected, of course. There on June 27th, Jim Morrison and press agents Leon Bernard arrive in Paris, France, and remain in Europe until late July. Jim later indicates that his time is used to prepare for the trial. So I think Jim's definitely in a, in a different mindset here. He's just, you know, focusing on this trial, and we know it weighs heavy on him. And in July of 1970, Absolutely Live is released. So that album's released. There's a spotting on July 18th at a Pink Floyd show of him at Hyde Park National Amphitheater in London attending this Pink Floyd show. And he did an interview with Bob Kirsch, or however you pronounce his name, I believe, in December. And he talks about the influence that show had on him. And so he's there. We get the, you know, some other things. And in your in your neck of the woods in New York, the Now Explosion plays again, that that uh, 67 show that was recorded in soundstage performance for, in Canada that was recorded. And then we also, Miami Trial, of course, happens from August 6th to August 14th, and again on August 17th to August 20th. But an interesting date where another Jim Morrison in the wild spotting, I actually have a friend uh, who unfortunately had a stroke. He's he's still dealing with that this over a year later. Uh, Steve Kamet, I hope you're doing doing well, buddy. But uh, he was really young at the time. He went to this place called The Hump in Miami, Florida, and and he went to go see Canned Heat. And he rem- and he was real young. He had this, I think one of his friends worked there, an older friend of his or his brother's friend snuck him in. And he was sitting at one of the the table not too far from the stage, and he saw somebody come by the table and almost knock the table over, running up there and get on stage and stuff. And he had no idea what was going on. He wasn't familiar with the Doors at the time, but that was Jim Morrison, and he got to witness that. Jim Morrison cops on stage, joins Canned Heat, and performs yeah. a little bit with him. So yeah. that that is a whirlwind of stuff. And and you can go and chime in and say whatever you want to, because I think you know. But a lot yeah. of stuff is happening here, but not a whole lot of Jim performing and. And doing that, yeah. you know. Well, that's a great segue, and it leads into a point I was going to make. After, you know, after Vancouver, the second half of the year, you're talking a period from, you know, after June 6th up to New Orleans, which was on December 12th. They only played four or five times. Again, it's because of the trial. They were supposed to do another European tour. They were going to be in Switzerland. For example, there was they were going to be on a bill. This is one of my biggest regrets. On eight thirty one seventy, about ten or ten days after Bakersfield, they were supposed to be in Switzerland on a bill with Black South. Yes, what a bill that would have been because of the trial. They couldn't do that. They were supposed to go to Italy, several European dates, but that all got wiped out. You know, you'll know, begin to. Shows after Bakersfield, towards the end, we talk about the aftermath. But I would just say, yeah, there was no sense of rhythm other than whatever studio work they were doing after Vancouver. It was like a two and a half month break till Bakersfield, and then after Isle of Wight, August. You know, they didn't play in Dallas, New Orleans till December. So yeah, they just weren't in sync. Not like the old days when they were doing 
gigs regularly and staying in top form. Yeah, so that, in addition to what was weighing on Jim, I mean, it was serious. This was like New Haven times 10. Even if they had thrown the book at him for New Haven, it was not as serious as, as Miami. He had been convicted. He was not going to go to some soft, delicate prison that a celebrity like Martha Stewart might wind up going to. You know, he, they were going to send him to Rayford Penitentiary. I mean, a hardcore prison. And, and he was afraid he could die there. You know, I mean, he was terrified. Yeah. Told his friends that. He, he told Max Fate that. Yeah, that was weighing on him. Yeah, so clearly, you know, as we get into the show, as he walked on stage that night, that was weighing on him, weighing on the band, I'm sure, because, you know, they're wondering what their future is like. You know, this was their livelihood. And yeah, it had to have had, you know, no question. Yeah. And getting into the show, you talked about, you know, you've, we've been talking around it and the opening performer, I think was a group called Krabby Appleton. I'd never really, I've heard the name just in this context. I had never heard them. Their biggest song is called Go Back. Just a little bit of it. Yeah. I mean, once in a while with some of those shows, they had some pretty good, um, opening acts like you know LA Forum with Jerry Lee Lewis that didn't go well unfortunately but have you it, it's it's got like a million streams I didn't know the name of your band I heard this oh so they they opened for the doors I did not know that yeah, let's. I, I don't. Let me hear this chorus real quick. Yeah, sure. Yeah, they remind me a little bit like Savoy Brown. Man, that that is a rocking group. I'm gonna have to check that out. I'm just curious, were they an LA band? I I, I don't know. They Did yeah, they are a hundred percent a Los Angeles band. Boom, Michael called that, called your shot there. Man, they only lasted from seventy to seventy two. They were on Electra labels. Okay, well that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, there were some other good Electra artists at the time. People forget about like Judy Collins and others. Mm, oh yeah, right on, just. Just after Jim died, Queen signed with Electra. Yeah. I mean, they had some phenomenal bands, true. But it makes sense they would be the opening act. Why not give an LA band a shot? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And and man, what a rocking sound, man. I love that. I'm gonna just gonna run through the set list real quick and then we will go song by song. We can talk about them, do whatever you want to do. We open with Roadhouse Blues, something that I think this was the Roadhouse Blues tour after all. And so uh they of course opened with that. Not all of them, I think, open with their house. P- Pittsburgh, I think, open with Backdoor Man, didn't it? But, you know. Uh, yeah, I was going to get into that when we get into the set. Okay, oh, yeah. yeah Road, Roadhouse was definitely a, a song they opened a lot of sets with. But, yeah, I, I'll get into it. Yeah, tradition, so we have the traditional melody of Alabama song, Backdoor Man, 5 to 1, with a caveat, Old Stone Road is thrown in after Backdoor Man. We'll talk about that. Uh, an extended jam of Universal Mind which is something they didn't play often with an instrumental version of summertime in there. And uh, I think it's eight plus minutes. So that's a great one. 
uh, when the music's over with, a, you know, instead of, I think there's a little portion that they changed the all my world part, Jim added in the mystery chain, train jam, you know, people get ready mystery train away in India crossroads ship of fools. You have a little bit of a subset of land ho at the end of that. We'll get into that. Love me two times with the cool suite of St. James infirmary, uh, which I think this is the only time the doors really perform the whole that Jim was able to do the whole bit of St. James infirmary. We had the little snippet from Boston, the Boston Arena show, but I don't know if he ever did the whole thing like he did here. Baby, please don't go. A staple that we hear, you know, from the beginning days of the London Fog. If you hear that tape, they did that song. Uh, oh, it's a I know it's St. James Infirmary. He did sing that in Vancouver. Did he sing the whole thing? Did he? Okay. I, I'd have to check. That's uh, that's a good question. I know he sang it, whether it's the whole thing, not sure. I'd have to check. Yeah, and and the and the of course the two songs we unfortunately don't have light my fire and the end so yeah. let's start from the beginning you want to and go song by song so I'll, I'll start us off with roadhouse blues because sure i think and and i think this is where me and you probably disagree i think this was a subpar vocal performance by jim there's some crackling some some off-pitch notes at the beginning especially but i think robbie saves this one his solo was electric it's a bit different than most shows, I think. And he even includes almost like an Eddie Van Halen sort of tap strum part. Uh, for a brief moment. And Jim includes this little extended say yeah section near the end. But... I think Robbie's the star of this song and maybe it's just Jim warming back up into it. I don't know. And it also could be these, this tape is not the, the, the best quality tape. I mean, we still have a better quality tape uh, out there. So we'll get into when we talk about uh, love me two times, but that's my opinion on this one. What do you think, Michael? I agree to a large extent. I'm not sure what the reason was. Jim's vocals. They're not at their peak. Again, just, Mentally, physically, wasn't what he was two and three years earlier. But I think they're solid. You know, throughout the show, and this will probably come up a few more times. I, I don't, I don't hear any evidence of him like slurring lyrics. Like for example, in Boston, it seemed he had had a few too many, especially the late show. But um, I think he was reasonably sober. I think Roadhouse was just a perfect choice to start the set. Good, rocking, bouncy, ballroom tune that the crowd gets into. I remember whenever I saw Ray and Robbie, or Robbie, one of his many bands, Sun Whalen, they almost always started with them. And um, yeah, it's longer than usual. Yeah, I love Robbie's solos in it. By 1970, I mean, he had matured. You got to remember, people don't always realize this, but you think of him now, he's what, 77, 78. He was a kid with the dudes. I mean, yeah. so I think, I got to look in his bio. I think he was 25 when Jim died. So he's, he's 24 at this show. But I mean, in three years, he had grown so much. He had this inimitable technique and style. Yeah, his solos are awesome, and Ray and John is always on form. I think John's drum 
feet is striding throughout the show. Ray's throwing in those little improvisational um, keys like you, you're so good at. Um, yeah, just a really good choice to get, you know, to get what seemed to be a receptive crowd into it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Robbie was born in 46, so he'd have been 24, 25 here, right? Somewhere That's, around there. Yeah. That sounds about right. And, you know, just by thinking that song, I love the way Ray would describe it. I think there's a, a studio outtake where either he or Jim talks about but If you saw, I'm sure you did, when Ray, Robbie, and John got together for the last time, sadly, the VH1 Storyteller Show, 2001, saw it when it aired, brought tears to my eyes. I'm not kidding. See them together again. Not knowing it was for the last time. And Ray said, you know, it was just setting the scene. You know, we're in a car, driving down the highway, got some J's, got a few beers, not driving too fast, but not too slow either. Just being with friends, good ballroom song. And yeah, it's clear. I think the band enjoyed playing it, a natural for Jim. And yeah, I think an excellent choice to open the set. I'd have to look at every set list. I think the majority of the 1970 shows they opened with, I think, I think you would point out Pittsburgh might be one of the exceptions. Yeah. Cause sure. Pittsburgh's backdoor man. Cause uh, John does the, he does the stick clicks at the beginning and then, uh, and then Robbie's the one who launches into, into backdoor man there. So that's a, that's one that I thought about, but moving on, speaking of backdoor man, the medley we have, uh, Alabama song, uh, Backdoor Man, Old Stone Road, and 5 to 1. And, you know, Old Stone Road's not one we hear often. Uh, let me just play a little bit of that for the people and see what, uh, tell me what you think oh. about it. Oh. Man, that's just a, just a great. The funny thing about this, and I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit, is at the end of it, like he was going to start playing it again. I think John has to sort of like, hey man, we, he just starts five to one, if I remember correctly. But that's what I remember from that. Is Old Stone Road is a really? Uh, I, I don't know if they ever did that on another Doors show. It ended up being the uh, name of the bootleg that circulated that I recall was Old Stone Road was the CD that that I remember circulating. Yeah, should we be remiss? We don't talk about um, Alabama song Whiskey Bar, which Go was ahead, an incredibly yeah. unusual choice for a rock band. I remember when they released it as um, a single in the UK. I have a rare 45 of them. They never released it as a single in the US, but in the UK they did. I think Clive Selwood from Electra said, yeah, what fun is out in the UK? I mean, what a risky choice but if i remember the story correctly i think the idea for them to play it i think it was actually dorothy manson i think in ray's record collection they had that recording lottie lenya was singing it she had sung it in um play that there because just to give a little background it was originally a german play 
from 1927 called Little Mahagoni. And then three years later, they kind of reworked it to make it um, the rise and fall of City of Mahagoni. Dorothy said, you know, we're playing this all the time. Apparently, John, Robbie, and Jim loved it too. They must have, remember, Jim was living there in Ray's house for a while. I'm sure Ray played some records for him. And Dorothy said, you guys should do it. But, you know, they were very astute. They realized, you know, the originals from the female perspective, they're, you know, women prostitutes singing it. And they agreed, you know, we got to change it to like a sort of male perspective and give it our own distinct Dorsian touch. And they worked their magic. And it's it's a masterpiece. And, you know, I just think even now, all these years later, how risky it was to include two covers, you know, Alabama song, you know, Backdoor Man, on their first album. They didn't even have an album that they weren't established. And to put two covers like that, yeah, just, I think, a perfect sequence of songs. I and, mean, you know, who, what other rock band would have taken inspiration from a 1920s German opera? And mm-hmm. I've actually heard the originals. My dad, rest in peace, was an opera buff. When I, I first knew a Doors fan, I said, Dad, they got a song from this Mahagoni. And I knew he had it. And he was shocked I would want to hear it. I wasn't an opera buff. I liked a little bit. Like Carmen, for example. I, I love a couple of them. Cavalleria Rusticano, I love. But I said, Dad, I, I want to hear it. I want to see how did they derive inspiration from it. And it's wonderful what they they did with it. And a, a good mood setter, too. Yeah, and to back that, it was such an interesting combination to back a you know 1920s opera song with like this Willie Dixon like blues Oh, yeah. And then have the original five to one, but he has Old Stone Road here. Uh, what 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 did you think about Old Stone Road? Like this is one of the appeals I think of Bakersfield is oh, this track. You know, I mean, it's such whole, so so much mystique around it. Do a whole episode on it, but yeah. So after I thought a good rendition of Backdoor Man, see Jim always got into that song. I know he was a admirer of Willie Dixon, and. Then he breaks into Old Stone Road, like you said, you know, several minutes of all. I was thinking about it earlier today. They didn't know what he was going to do most of the time. He was the word man. He just led them. And I first heard it when I got the report in 2005, and I was mesmerized. I mean, it's wonderful. To the best of my knowledge, unless there's a 70s show that we don't have a recording of or saying it, I don't believe it ever sing that snippet again seems to be improvisational but it breaks my heart it's one of those songs like palaces of the canyon where if they just worked on them in the studio and flushed it out it could have been a masterpiece because you know jim was always into these universal images the week before robbie wrote like my five remember the story he said, we don't have enough songs. I'm giving you guys homework. You go yeah. home over the weekend, you each write a song. Ray and John blew it off. Thank God, Robbie, diligent student he was, came up with Light My Fire. And Jim told him, these universal images, earth, air, fire, water. And in the lyrics to this, you're just playing some of it. I think it just encompasses a lot of what was going on in his mind. Because it, at the beginning, the image I get 
this old stone road, maybe a cobblestone road in a countryside lane. You're going with your loved one to a nice day in the countryside or to market in some small English town, nice and peaceful and all. And then the next thing he says, I shot my friend on an old stone road. Then I'm thinking, this is the man who came up with um, you know, with HWY, the, you know, the, the murderer slash hitchhike. And you know, I lost my girl on an old stone road. So you got you got death, you got loss from pain. And then my interpretation of the line, you know, if you're burdened with a heavy load, I, I looked online and asked other people. I couldn't find much people talking about it except for a brief chat in a website called the Doors Forum Scorpion from like 15 years ago. Two or three people had good interpretations. I think a reasonable interpretation of this burden is the burden Jim was carrying because he knew he could go to prison. Yeah. And there was weapon on him. And but also the burden of fame. You know, people thought he was like this human jukebox and the love of the music in the beginning was gone. And it's clear all the stuff weighing on him, but this old stone road could be anywhere. And who knows what you're going to encounter on it. And sadly for Jim and the Doors, it was near the end of the journey when they were on Bakersfield. Man, I, th- I think that's a good interpretation. I think one thing you one thing I noticed with Jim and one thing I think people you could probably test to and other people uh, who are yeah. fans is that Jim often interjected poetry, interjected all this stuff into the live shows Sometimes it was just the spontaneity of it, and I think that's one thing that makes the door so genius. But he he really left his emotions. Sometimes he would just leave his emotions on stage. Man, he would he would say what he's feeling, but he would put it in his own unique way. I th- I personally think that's what Old Stone Road is, but I don't you know who really knows what it was. But I, I think it's a really cool track in this whole show. Uh, one of the more redeeming parts of the show. This, and I think the the next song we'll talk about after five to one. But I, I I really enjoyed Old Stone Road, and I think it's a, a cool little. Hey, anything you I think you said it. Anything can happen here. You've got tragedy, you've got love, you've got the highs and lows of life, but they all happen right here on this Old Stone Road in life, wherever it may be. You know. To that, you know, I've looked it up. I've never found an interview in which he talked about it. Maybe it was just a spur of the moment thing, and there was. It, it was brilliant. I would have loved to see Ray Robbie and John work on it in the studio. It could have been something beautiful. I, I don't know why they did it. Five to One's one of those. I think this was not the best version they did out of the 70 shows. Uh, it's sort of, Jim sort of ends it. I don't, I don't know. He sort of seems like he, there's points to the show, and I think unlike uh, the Isle of Wight Festival, where I think Jim seems like lacking complete energy. This show, he he doesn't seem as energetic, but he has spontaneity, sort of the spont the spontaneous energy at different points, you know. So I, th- I just think five to one was one of the down tracks on this show. Maybe deep down, you know, like Robbie asked him first at one time, you know, what do the lyrics mean? And Jim told him the theory that you know there were five young people in the U.S. I guess. The definition being under the age of 21 for older people, and together we can take over. 
you know, they got the guns, but we got the numbers. Maybe in those two intervening years from 68, when he wrote it for the Waiting for the Sun album, to 70, all that had happened in the country, Vietnam escalating, and the, you know, the horrible murders of Robert Kennedy and Dr. King. Yeah, I think he might have been disillusioned Maybe to realize the revolution wasn't going to happen. You know, I think he saw early on flower power. It wasn't going to last. And yeah, no, I, I get your point. Powerful lyrics, a militant tune. Yeah, I mean, the other three guys play it well. They're pros. Yeah, doesn't seem to quite have a force it did back in uh, 68. So I agree. Yeah, but I but I think they do with well with what they have, and we go into Universal Mind, which this is a great version of Universal Mind, an extended jam oh. on Universal Mind. I oh. think this is probably my favorite song on the, uh, you know, the favorite song on the whole show, just because one of my favorite bits, and and I'll, I'll play a little bit for you here. One sure. of my favorite bits is the middle bit where, and and we'll get into this a little bit. But but that's a great bit, and one of the cool things about that little bit, and and tell me if you if you hear it, is yep. that was actually a reference to a Coltrane song, and and it's really cool. I didn't know this until uh, maybe I don't remember when I I learned this, but it was the, here is Afro Blue by John Coltrane. But yeah, that's Coltrane doing that, and that little riff was something I think that uh that uh Ray taught him, and and or I think was it Ray or I think Ray and and John and Robbie worked on it, and they just threw it in the Universal Mind, and they had a really cool jam there with uh John Coltrane's Afro Blue. Borrow, for example, during I think it was like my fire, he would include something from my favorite things, and yeah, yeah there were improvisations. In 1970, and I've always thought it was a beautiful song. Um, I remember hearing it years ago. I was just starting the job in a new school, like I didn't know anyone. And I heard, you know, the line Jim has I'm just looking for a home in every face I see. Yeah. You know, like that soul kitchen that clean, well-lighted place that Hemingway wrote about, that security that we all need. And sadly, I, I don't think Jim ever found it. Maybe at times with Pavela, but too much turbulence in his life. But yeah, beautiful um, 
song, absolutely. And I think that would have been worthy of inclusion on a studio album. I think, you know, they could have put it on soft grade. I would prefer that over do it or easy ride any day of the week. But at least they put it on absolutely well. They deserve to be heard. It's, it's a beautiful piece. And you feel Jim lamenting. You know, he's, like you say, showing us his psyche, his pain, the isolation we are. Just my team. No, I agree. And, and I think this is not the best version of the song they did live. But I don't yeah. think it's necessarily bad. I mean, you know, you can have something that's not as good as something else and it still be great. And I think Universal Mind is one of those songs that uh, that Jim really nailed and did very well. I think this is, you know, and, and I think the instrumental part really put it over the top. I, I love the, I love any any references, any allusions to other music, especially jazz, because that's something I've been learning over the years, especially because of the doors to appreciate is the jazz in it. And that's one of the things that I really love about that show, about the, about that song and, you know, this show. And we get into when the music's over. And one thing I wanted to listen to is I, I didn't get a good read on that opening scream. And that's usually my favorite part of the music's over is the opening scream. But I want to make sure I want to listen again on these. On, I've got, these are a little bit better headphones. And I, over the years, I've heard it and I can't remember I'm sort of trying to think is it is is it as good as I remember or, or what? So let me just let me just listen to it right here. I I think I think that's not as good as like some of them, but I I definitely think Jim exudes that energy there. Man, I, I really enjoy it. I I love the 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 screams when the music's over when he starts that man is is always one of my favorite things of any show. Uh, when they when they started, and and I know that some there's some detractors to the Hollywood Bowl shows, and there's some things that aren't as good as at the Hollywood Bowl shows. But that opening, the when you, when the music's over, is opening phenomenal. Primal scream. Yeah, and I was surprised when they opened Hollywood Bowl. I don't think ever opened another set with it. But yeah, you know the earlier shows, you know '68 and um um. Even late 67, I'm not sure they played it for the first time. Yeah, that primal scream, it leads up to that crescendo and or just, you know, the guys play it. Oh, yeah, no, it's phenomenal. And, yeah, it's clear Jim doesn't quite have the energy during the past. But, again, I don't think he was intoxicated. I think he was trying. Just basically just wasn't in the best of shape. It's not like Isla White. Where he was just slumping on the microphone, you know, smoking a Marlboro or whatever he was smoking at the time. Yeah. You know, it's, I think he was trying in Vegas from the guys were trying to support him. Yeah. And one thing that interesting about this, and they, and this was, wasn't anything too uncommon, but always something I find interesting is anytime like there's bits of lyrics that are, are swapped out or anything, any, any anomalies and songs that aren't the run of the mill. And he takes out the cancel my subscription to the resurrection part. Something wrong, something See, see, and this is really good. Like this is. Jim is really on right here, man. Like just good, yeah. just good stuff here. And that was always a good theatrical piece. I thought probably the best version of that 
Roberts when the doors were open, Roundhouse 68. Oh, man, yeah. Just got into this whole carnivalesque atmosphere. I think one of the best reviews of their music early on, it was like they were playing at an outer space carnival or something. Like that. Yeah, Jim was just digging deep into psyche and our fears there. Yeah, it was always a nice um, piece. And it, you know, Flush Down was already a long song. It's like 11 minutes or so originally. Yeah. They would stretch it out. Yeah, I thought it was very effective. Absolutely. And and that's my favorite door song. Uh it was the first song door song I ever heard. And oh, wow. and it's it's I mean, it is just something that uh that has resonated with me to this day, man. So I love that song. And another thing I love is the mystery train jam. I've heard some other people I had a conversation with Tarn Stefano talking about Boston and oh. and man, he, he is one of the, you know, expert doors people I've talked to, like just talking to him. And I know he doesn't love the mystery train jam and, and I get that. But something about me loves a good train song. Maybe it's growing up uh, listening to country western music, listening to Johnny Cash and Hank Williams, man. But I, I love a good train song. Michael, where are you on the Mystery Chain Jam? Is it something you love to hear in the door show, or could you do without it? No, no, I, I, I like it. You know, just to make sure people know it was not a Doors original. It had been done by other artists and bands before them and after it. For example, I'd have to look it up. Neil Young did a version of it. Jerry Garcia did one. Now with the Dead, I think it was with the Jerry Garcia band. So others had done it. But, you know, Jim gave it his own little twist. Again, you know, I think the train is just a metaphor, you know, for the journey in life. You know, who knows really where we're heading. I mean, just the universal imagery and you know people get ready that sounds like the gym at 67 68 i think the one that was hoping for a revolution for things to get better you know i can tell all the people following me down i know robbie wrote that but yeah still yeah you know the revolution he was hoping for um then he segues into the, the very evocative wayne india and I was thinking of that too just recently, because I a few weeks ago, earlier in the summer, I told you I got um I bought a copy of the second draft of the Doors movie. And there's a scene that it's not in the stone version, like Jim and Ray are just talking. You know, because Jim's making it clear he just wants to get away, he wants to go to Mexico, just the pressures and all. And Ray's saying, you know, we got to finish the album, dude. We got out of contract with Electro. But whether it's India or wherever, you know, in the end, you want to be in Paris. And Jim just wanting to get away. But I think the imagery in a way in India is beautiful. And then it leads, you know, to Crossroads. You know, again, beautiful lyrics. The one that sticks in my mind most when I got the H-bomb on my mind, which was a reality in 1970. And now I'm thinking almost 53 years later to the day, we got the madman Putin threatening to transfer nukes to Ukraine. He hasn't already. And how this apocalyptic doomsday is, it's still a reality. That's one reason I love Jim's lyrics. I think they're still relevant. 
You can't say, oh, no one has those thoughts or feelings anymore 53 years later. You know, we sure as hell did. And the world of anything is even scarier. So now instead of the H-bomb, it's the cluster bombs that they're starting to use and um, whatever other depth tools they're coming up with. I think Jim maybe envisioned that to some degree, just a, a powerful um, that way. And again, not original, but it gives it its own twist. I think very evocative, you know, a nice medley, nice pieces that they make. And the juxtaposing images, I think they, they blend together well. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about it, that they start out with People Get Ready, which is a Curtis Mayfield uh, tune from like 65, I think. So they do a little call out to that. Mystery Train, probably where, where Jim heard it was Elvis did a great cover of it. It's probably, I imagine, where, where Jim probably got that version of. One of the, in my notes here for, for this, just listening to it again today, getting a refresher, is, is just the weak vocal performance on Mystery Train. I think, I think you know, just I couldn't quite place it. But one thing that made up for it is something unique to the show, and I could be completely off. Somebody could say could could bring it up and, and point it out. I'm I'm not as one one of my good friends, Travis Williamson, he he is a he knows these bootlegs in and out. And but but this part at the beginning of Mystery Train, listen to Robbie's guitar. I don't think I ever heard him do this like these licks. Like it's a very interesting feel he does at the beginning. <laughs> It's more melodic. improvisation jamming on stage. And yeah, you know, and especially later on. It wasn't like with the Hollywood Bowl where they rehearsed that show. Yeah. Bobby painted, they didn't rehearse that often. And to just go on stage and follow Jim like that. But at the same time, not to do this whole mystery train jam in the same way as some of the earlier 70s shows. These unique little twists and subtle nuances. I mean, it's it's impressive. They were just kind of making it up as they went along to show what brilliant musicians, Ray Robbie and John, amazing. Yeah, and then one other note I had was away in India, the end of his voice, undul- undul- like the notes he hits, just, man, I don't know if it's the recording or what, but Jim's just a little off. Which, which, which and, and usually he's spot on with that, and, and I understand. I just I just think it might be been a lack of practice, but one thing, you know, and, and maybe being out of it a little bit, but one thing, one way I think they make up with it was Ship of Fools. I, I think that this, there's a big burst of energy here. And in the end was almost, he almost seemed a little lackluster, but then he goes into... Land Ho, and I love, man, Land Ho is one of those songs, man, like, it's an underrated song to me, and it's a weird song, but it's one of those that if Land Ho comes on, buddy, you better be, you better believe I'm turning the radio up, because Land Ho is, I don't know, it's just fun to listen to, it's very catchy, almost reminds me of like a sea shanty, you know. I've always been curious exactly where we got the inspiration, I've always wondered, even found him say it in an interview, but a, an excellent novel I read in college was Ship of Fools by Catherine Ann Porter. It came out in 1962 about some people who were um, sailing from Mexico to Europe. And it's this whole, it discusses like the rise of Nazism, but 
there's a deep metaphor about how you know the human race is trying to um find paradise and you know eternity. I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't shock me if Jim read that. He was incredibly well-read. You know the stories. He would say, pick a book, like on a shelf over here. Pick a book, turn to a page, read a sentence. And he would tell you, you know, the title and the author and all that. He might have read Porter's book, Ship of Fools. I don't know. But again, universal imagery, if you think of the Earth as a cosmic ship, a crystal ship, and... You know, we got to poke fun at ourselves. Sometimes we're all fools, you know, yeah. myself included. You know, we're foolish moments. We don't always carry ourselves with pride and dignity. Um, so, I mean, a great tune. Yeah, I, and I do think they played the hell out of it. You know, one of the, definitely one of the more strident, stronger-sounding tunes. Maybe because it was more recent, they just put out Morrison Hotel a few months earlier. Yeah. But exactly where we got the inspiration for that, it's not the Porter novel. I'm not sure. Maybe one of our listeners will. Not sure. Maybe so. Maybe we'll get to uh, get some feedback on that if you want to send that to. If you know any more about that, send it to opening the doors pod at gmail.com. Yeah. One thing I wanted to, to play real quick is just that end of Ship of Fools because I love it so much. Go for it. Robbie with some great guitar work. And then go back into Ship of Fools. But, but man, man, so good. Michael, I think you're winning me over on liking the show. I, I, I think I was a little lukewarm on this show when we started this podcast and, and haven't heard it again today. As we're going through it and the more we listen to bits, I think I'm coming around on it because I think if we could hear Light My Fire and the end, I could make a really, a really good judgment on this. But what we have heard uh, is Love Me Two Times is, is that great mix. And I think, I don't know if some of what I have is the, a, a bootleg is, is it a bootleg or is, is there a bootleg out there? Cause the quality doesn't sound as good as a lot of my fire sound from the Britain. There's been a lot of um, Bakersfield bootlegs. Cause like I said, the first surfaced, it was in decent quality. I got it in 05, I believe. <clears throat> Later there was an upgrade. I mean, don't ask me how you would make an upgrade of a, soundboard recording of us someone with their home studio EQ'd it and all that I don't know but I have both versions and you know the upgrade sounds better but um yeah that love me two times then the medley with St. James Infirmary yeah the, the doors put it out on um I believe it's the live in America CD Bright Midnight who's from a series of shows. And you know, this this bothers you know, we were talking about just before we came on the air. We know the doors have the second reel. I've seen pictures and pictures were posted online of the reels. 
my guess, I, I mean, I'm not their archivist. I can't know for certain. But um, I'm guessing this medley with Love Me Two Times and then going to the beautiful, you know, St. James Infirmary, Baby Please Don't Go. I'm guessing that's on the second reel, along with Light My Fire in the end. And, you know, before I just say why I love this whole medley, you know, I'm, I'm pulling out the doors on this. I mean, come on. It's, I thought, honestly, back in August of um, 2020, it would have been so cool to put this out for the 50th anniversary. You know, yeah. they don't have much left they haven't released. We know, except for, the, you know, Vince turned on the machine a few seconds late, missed 10 or 15 seconds of Roadhouse Blues. But other than that, we have the whole show. And mm-hmm. I remember hearing rumors over the years. I, I was going to ask Ray at the time I met him. I shouldn't. That he didn't want it released. He didn't think it was good enough. I, I cannot understand for the life of me why they won't put out the show in its entirety. Because besides what we have, you know, the Love Me Two Times, Medley, Universal Mind, Old Stone Road alone worth the price of admission. Why my fire in the end, the way they would stretch those out, that's got to be another 25 to 30 minutes. And it would flesh out a, a, a really good show. And to hear the band, like I said early on, my opinion, the listeners can disagree, you can disagree. I really think in a lot of ways it was their last hurrah. I think they owe it to us after 53 years to finally release the full thing. The magic, Bruce Botnick could work with what's already a soundboard recording. They can't say, oh, it's a poor quality audience tape. Vince recorded it through the board. You know, and Bruce could work his magic. I'm being honest, but I don't know why we're still waiting for the complete show all these years later. It's a shame. The only uh, what, then? Yeah, the only thing I could think is maybe you think they don't think it's up to quality, which they put out they put out Boston. And I could be incorrect, but I th- I th- was was Bakersfield, it isn't technically a soundboard. Was it recorded through stage microphones, maybe? Is that what Vince said in his book, I believe? I, I think so. So, but I mean, either way, we know, and we and, we're, and I'll play a bit of this, the quality is excellent from what they put out on that, on that Bright Midnight Sampler. And here's the thing I don't understand is the Bright Midnight Sampler is like, hey, here's what's coming out. All those, everything from that has came out except for this. Why? Why has this not came out yet? You know, how long ago was that? Two thousand five, maybe. Was that when it was put out? Something like. Hadn't be before that. Two thousand one. Was that it? Was it the? It was the cover with Jim and the, and he had the sparkler in his teeth. Was yeah. that the one I'm thinking of? But it's been too long. Yeah. It's been you know close to two decades. No matter how you split it. But you know, speaking of that, this is some of the. I want to, I want to start with baby, please don't go and sort of work our way there. This is something we talked about was on London fog and stuff, but here's the quality of the tape. This is directly from the bright midnight sampler. Of 
I love the guitar. Robbie again with good guitar parts. And I'm going to jump into a little bit of St. James Infirmary. We can, we can talk a little bit about it all. But that is that that is all we have of Bakersfield, man. Two, uh, just just a oh, man. I want that other reel. But amazing stuff right there. Jim's vocals. I think he's right in his pocket there, and he is in that baritone, that that bluesy, you know, stuff that where Jim really excels, especially here in 1970. I think something. This is right in his wheelhouse where he excels. Could have been another cover they could have worked on the um, studio and. Um, yeah, I'll tell you, painful memory, the line stretched out on a marble table. When I first heard Jim sing that, I thought back to when uh, I was a teenager, one of my first pets, we brought a cat to the vet. You know, they had to put him to sleep. I had the image of him stretched out on that table. That memory stayed with me. And that's why years later, this is maybe 10 years by another cat who's old, who's going to pass away. Just yeah. old age, 17. I remember that earlier memory of the cat I had years earlier stretched on a, on a marble table. They were going to jump the cat, put him to sleep. I said, you know, this time, this cat I love, he's going to, he's going to make that journey in the peace of his own home. It's just, I, I remember that marble tape, and you know, the medical facilities, you know, you have the corpses, the cadavers. But it just shows how amazing Jim was that it could elicit those memories from me. And I'm just one listener. It can mean something to someone else. That, that lyric stays with me. Wow. And I'm just going to say it again. I wish they would. Release it. Maybe now Ray West in peace is gone. Maybe the surviving doors can work with the management team that um, took over Ray and Robbie shares and get it out. It's a, as far as I know, it's the last soundboard that they have that you don't. Yeah, I, I wish they would release it. I just I love this show. I really do. And and, and maybe Primary Wave sort of taking over. Uh, you know to. 50% of the, of the publishing rights, maybe they will have an incentive to release it now. And I would, and, and my biggest thing is I would really want this show. I, I want it to be released before Bruce Botnick passes away. And I want him to be able to, 
be able to to edit all the door, you know, sort of mix all the door shows because he does all the bright midnight releases. No matter of what you think of the quality or, or how Jim was this night or that night, all the releases have been phenomenally mixed, and they put you in the moment, man. If you listen to that Boston show, if you listen to the Felt Forum tapes, you know, man, you were there in the crowd, and it's it's amazing what he does. And when you look at some of the stuff like I've mentioned it before, like the Dagger Records is the Hendrix label, and they've released a lot of bootlegs, and 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 Eddie Kramer does an amazing job of that stuff. But but there's just something about that these these shows like this Bakersfield show the 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 shows that have these you know soundboard recordings that you just can't get, man. I I, I hope they release it, and and maybe we'll get that one day, you know. The great engineers in music, mixers in the last half century. There's been a lot. The three to come to my mind, besides Bruce Bachman, Robert Ludwig, I posted, I just got a copy of his uh, hot mix of, of um, Zeppelin II. Ah, and this world, he also did a mix of the Doors' first album and Soft Parade. Bachman is up there. I wish they would give him a chance. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he would love to do it. Get his hands on Beans' tape. They have it. I just, I, I just don't understand. And you know, and as we lead, you know, into the last part of the show, you know, we're going to talk about the aftermath of Beans' film. It just, it really irks me when I think of, you know, they did four more shows after Bakersfield, but this was I, again their last for the law. We deserve to hear it. It's, I'd love to hear what Jim. You know what med what medleys they did with Light My Fire? Did Robbie throw in some coal trade? You know, did Jim do any um new lyrics for the end? Like, let's feed ice cream to the rats, like we did with the Matrix. Yeah, I'm psyched about the Matrix. We deserve it. You know, everyone would benefit, they'd make money. People want to hear it. I I don't know. I hope we get it. Yeah. We do. And and one thing and one thing I would say before we move on to the aftermath is I wanted to mention just a few things about this show. Sure. Uh, you know, Jim Morrison's we talked about him being on trial. He was on trial the day before the show. Uh, and some of this information comes from the mild equator. Uh, it, okay. All the promotional posters, handbills, nothing's ever surfaced from it. There's a short backstage interview with Jim prior to the show. And portions of the film are, are portions of the performance are filmed for television use, but never utilized. And so we have that. We also have an eight minute version of universal mind that we talked about and it's recorded through sound through it's recorded through stage microphones by road manager, Vince trainer. And I actually, I actually talked about, uh, I talked to Travis Williamson. He's interviewed Vince. He helped him with his book extensively. I uh, asked him if, if Vince had any ins, other insight on this and, and Vince didn't really have a lot to say about this show. But one thing I think is, is interesting. If you, if you watch that, the little bit of film we have of it, is is the band is very relaxed. If you look at their sixty some of their sixty eight shows with with Jim and his poet shirt and in the band like Ray dressed to the nines and and you know all this stuff. Robbie wearing you know you know some of the stuff that Robbie used to wear those pants and stuff. You know those big flare leg pants. They they look really relaxed. Jim comes out like a blue just t shirt man. Some some black pants and and the whole band. The only person really sort of John's wearing a a white sort of dress dressier shirt. Ray's where it looks like he's wearing short sleeves. You know, Robbie's really dressed down here. Just, just not a whole lot. Just very 
very laid back is what I would say with this. And I had to, I do have one, uh, I do have one little audi- audience, I guess somebody who's, who was in the audience who has a review of the show. I attended the oh. August 1970 concert in Bakersfield. The first act to perform was Krabby Appleton. My girlfriend and I stood at the apron of the stage for the entire show. Jim, as I recall, drank one quart of Schlitz beer throughout. At one at one point, he asked me for a cigarette, and I gave him a Winston. He dedicated the end to a couple in the crowd who had just got married. Jim performed with his back to the crowd for much of the concert. He had his long hair and beard at the time and looked old to me. The concert was awesome, tight, and without incident. Attendees were sitting on the concrete floor. I have no idea what the attendance was, but it seems like that many. Uh, but it didn't seem like that many. That concert and a recent Santana concert in Nashville were the best I ever attended. Spiritual experiences, and I was straight for both. So, hey, and, and if you listen to the audio tape, despite what I say, go listen to the show. All the people dug it, man. The crowd is into it. Like they're they're cheering after every song, man. So, I mean, that's all the. Um, no, I was just going to say, um, look, at, I know it's on YouTube. There are people who are really good um, with Doors video, like 16 millimeter films and syncing the audio. There is a portion of video from that show that they sync the audio to, and it's like almost perfect. I don't know how the heck they do it, but it's it's cool to um see yeah I wish you know too bad they didn't take the whole thing but um thank Vince for at least giving us the audio now Doris just have to give us the rest of it. yeah and so you know that leads us into the aftermath and that's something you brought up so let's talk about it let's talk about the aftermath you know uh, you you sort of gave us a good head start with not many too not too many shows after this one so they played bakersfield it was a weekend thing. it was uh, it was on a friday august 21st the following night they went down the road to san diego a couple hundred miles whatever it is i'm not sure and see i'm being careful when i say bakersfield was their last hurrah i do think that's probably true but i have to have the caveats of saying First, while there is an audience recording of San Diego the following night, it's atrocious. It's virtually unlistenable. And I've heard through the years there was an improved version, which I, I don't think ever surfaced. You could barely make out the band saying. So I can only base it on reviews I've read. I've seen one or two people who were there first. San Diego is an unusually long show. It doesn't seem to have been that good. But again, since you can barely make the audio for it out, I don't want to rush to judgment. I'm just getting the feeling it was not as good as Bakersfield um, the night before. But I don't, whatever reason, the tape for San Diego is horrible. And then a week later, you got Isle of White. No mystery there. We had the audio for years. And Great quality. You know, we got the video a couple of years ago. Ray, Ray summed it up. You know, it was Dionysus Shackled. Jim's spirit was gone. He was exhausted. I think he hadn't slept in like two days. Instead of flying to East Afton Farm with the band, 
He caught a later flight, so he didn't get to rest. He had just been in port. And, you know, we've all seen the video. I mean, he sings, um, but he just stands there smoking a cigarette, no life, no emotion. John was furious at the you know, started threw his drumsticks down. He's like, I'm never going to play with that blankety-blank again. Um, in Vince's book, I do think he has a memory lapse. I brought this up online. He claims the Doors came back later that night and played a second set. I've never seen any evidence of it. There was like another band that didn't show up or something. I think we would know if they played another set. But yeah, Ray, Robbie, and John are there in form, but Jim's energy was gone. Then we just have Dallas. Then you got another long break. It's, it's December before they appear here with you know, the trial and all. Jim's out on appeal. And um, they do the two sets in Dallas. We have the first set for a while. They sound tired. They sound rusty, but there, there are moments of interest. They played L.A. Woman for the first time, a rudimentary version of it, Lover Madly. And then there was demand, so they did a late show. And fortunately, um, they had the story on Miles Equator, the band Jim Bayless. I don't know how the heck the guy snuck in a tape recorder in his knapsack. You'd think they would have searched him, but uh, he got it through. And he did a smart thing. The batteries were running low. He said, you know what? I have so much battery power. But hey, they're playing some stuff I haven't heard before. Um, you know, like, Palace in the Canyon, let me focus on the new stuff. And even though it's a slow running tape, we have it. And along with Old Stone Road, this, this, this is my other big regret from the 70s shows. This is why I want to hear New Orleans. We'll get to that in a minute. I want to hear it, not even for the live riders on the storm, because according to the photos we have of the mailbox, it was aborted. Just didn't work, or Jim was out of it. I want to hear palaces of the canyon. I, I mean, yeah, should have walked on there in the studio, you know, just a, a beautiful piece. And then I'll just mention New Orleans, and you can chime in with your thoughts on the aftermath. Again, I want to exercise caution. It would be easy to say, Oh, this was the end, Jim was a train wreck. He smashed the microphone into the stage. Okay, I get all that. Read Vince's book. He was there. Yeah. Jim was intoxicated. Vince talks about how the other band members, they begged the promoters and do, please don't leave any alcohol backstage. But somehow, like a 12-pack was there. Jim found it. But my theory, can you tell me what you think? I think... The beer he was drinking, I think he'd consumed some hash. I don't think it hit him all of a sudden. Because from the photos of the real boxes we've seen from New Orleans, they played a pretty long set. It wasn't like Miami, where they only did one complete song. The rest of the songs fell apart. Jim was rambling with his living theater revolutionary speech. They got through a number of songs. I think it just had a cumulative effect, the alcohol and the hash. 
combined with his mental state, and that's what led to the destruction of Ned. If I remember correctly, what was this? Did they have a? When was the trial in Miami brought down? Because I feel like I don't know. It, all this is building up for Jim. I think uh, New Orleans. You know, I also think that, and this is just sort of a weird. This is a personal opinion on my part, yeah, yeah. but I think that. I think that New Orleans has this air about it, man. Like there's a supernatural element to New Orleans and maybe this is an out there thing to say, but I think that the, the mixture of, of, Hey, the, you know, Jim's going through all this and, and the, 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 this, the place that is New Orleans, man, like strange things happen there. And I think, you know, Ray sort of mentioned it and, and talked about the ghosts and stuff. And, and I don't know if I, I, I buy into that, that to that extent, but man, I think that, that the energy there. There's something about it. Just it was the perfect combination. They're in this old warehouse, and it was just the the last show. It it was, it was destined to happen. Maybe in a way, I, I'm not really sure, but that's just sort of my my. Maybe that's that's my believer. I guess what what are the tenfold hat theory of mine? Yeah, some lucid thoughts there. And again, when I come into it here, my gut feeling is if we ever finally get to hear it. There'll be some interesting moments like they did with Rivals on the Storm. They finish it. I'm hoping Palace's Canyon is in better quality than Dallas. It wasn't recorded on a, a cassette player with the batteries running out. We know it was recorded on a real player. It should be in decent quality. Um, I'd love to hear you know, the jam during Light My Fire with the members of Kansas. Yeah. That's historical interest. Um, and then it's ironic it all ended with the song that drove them to stardom like my fire because it, it was during that song that Jim had his meltdown was um, it that or was it the end I've heard some people say it was the end it might have been I think I saw that on the Doors AI site I could be incorrect on that I'll have to look Ben said it was like my fire um yeah, because they, they they circled around the instrumental a few times. And then, um, you know, Jim just sat down in front of John's drum lines and John kind of yeah, kicked yeah. up with his foot. I, I don't think that would have happened with the end because the melodic structure is different. But like my fire, you know, they did their solos. They would keep cycling back to where Jim would come in and resume the vocals and he didn't. So, yeah, if the listeners want to clarify that. I always thought it was like my file. The pictures were online of the, on the real box. Yeah, it says the last song on the pictures on the box were the end. But I, I sort of do agree with you that it does. It, I, I, I do. Th- I think, you know what I think it was, too, is I think before this tape came out, I yeah. think that the doors themselves, I think John in his book talked about how it happened during yeah. Light My Fire, if I, if I remember correctly. But but I think either way, I think both are fitting songs to be the end, the last song they ever play. And you talked about San Diego, man. San Diego was a weird show, like Louie Louie Carol, uh, you know, just just weird tracks that they don't often do. Uh, you know, just just I think that's strange. I would love I would love to hear a good copy of San Diego. And you talked about it supposedly existing. So, who must be a better quality one? I don't think it's ever surfaced. That's yeah. Why I say- Reserve judgment because you can barely make it out. Oh, yeah. But it, I just—it doesn't sound from the reviews like it was up to the level of Davis. Yeah, oh, hundred. I, I agree with you completely on that, Michael. And one thing I think is, 
there's been a lot of talk, you know, in the past few months and, and really ramping up with the rider strike and stuff about AI and the, the capabilities of AI. And, and there's some negative things that definitely come along with it. But one of the positives I think we could gain is, is some of the way they're able to clean up audio now and, and recreate audio. And it sounds so amazing. And and you've posted some of that in some of the groups around in your group and uh, the group we both run that, that you started the uh, unendurable pleasures prolonged, you know, I, I, th- I think, uh, I, I think there's just so much that if we could, if we could do something with this, you know, and, and maybe clean up this audio that I, I don't know how good it would turn out. Uh, but, but, you know, I think there's so much potential there to clean that up because, you know, you had that San Diego show and, and getting back on, on track, you know, just, just some of the immediate things that happened in the aftermath that we mentioned, you know, this trial is still ongoing up until August 25th through the 27th. It's ongoing. They fly out the 28th and they play the Olive White Festival on Saturday, Saturday the 29th. And you have a lot of people at the, at the Wahala White Festival, uh, you know, a couple of them like Miles Davis, which, uh, the who and Jimi Hendrix, you know, when Jimi Hendrix would be dead, uh, just a month, you know, less than a month after that, September 18th, 1970, Jimi Hendrix passes away and the European tours canceled. We mentioned that at the top of the show, but, but just, just in this amount of time, we we've talked about the end of the doors and stuff. We've talked about Bakersfield. We've talked about all this culmination of events. And I think as we go forward and as I go forward to this podcast, uh, just, just these shows become even more important, I think in the historical context and I think Bakersfield was just a, a good show to cover, Michael. And I, and I really appreciate you bringing it to me and joining me for the show. Uh, is there anything we haven't talked about on Bakersfield or anything you want to talk about before we start doing our uh, our pleasantries and wrapping up? Well, uh, well, I hope they finally release it. Um, again, uh, I want to get, once you post the audio and then I put the video up in the group summit, I want to get feedback. Maybe some people think more highly of Bakersfield than we do or less um, highly of it. But again, I stick to my guns. I think in a lot of ways, it was the last hurrah. It's been on my mind in a few days. It's going to be 53rd anniversary of it. Um, and, you know, Jim didn't have long to go. You know, his old stone road was leading to roads in Paris and unfortunately to the end and you know just I, I just think it was it's a, a lovely show to remember and where we were able to talk about I love the show I yeah I, I agree and and what would you give it out of 10 stars before we go I, I want to hear your uh, your rating putting you on the spot we didn't talk about this beforehand five to eight Ray Robbie and John are just Inform, you know, Jim's there. I think in spirit, just physically, he wasn't in good form. But there were just some inspired moments, like I said, Old Stone Road, worth the price of admission. You know, the medleys, you know, Universal Minds and all. Um, yeah, seven point five to eight, and. You're definitely one of the best shows from 1970. And again, you say it the last time, I think the last good show they did with Jim. Until I get New Orleans, 
and a good quality copy of San Diego and someone convinced the other ones. I think it was their last hurrah for an incredible band. Yeah, and and I think I'm a little below you, but I don't think I'm too far. I'd, I'd give it like a six point two five, and and on on and you know I could be convinced to go up to like a a six six and a half or a seven on that. But but I think that Ray and Robbie especially is like the highlight of this show. I think Robbie is really on fire. You know the show, and I, th- I think he's one of the strong points. I, I like the. I like the energy at times, and I think they're more energetic than they are at the Isle of Wight. Maybe that's mostly Jim sort of bringing that down. And I think Jim's vocals, they by the end of the show, I think he, I, that's why I want to hear Light My Fire and The End, something you talked about. I want to hear the end of it because I think by the end, Jim sort of got the 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 dust, you know, the cobwebs, uh, to use a metaphor, knocked off. And and he's he's more into his element singing, you know, after not, having sung anything for almost two months, but you know, Bakersfield overall, I think we can agree that it's a testament to what the doors were in 1970. You know, sometimes you got the good, sometimes you got the bad, but ultimately you got a very solid show and all the people who were there, if you listen to the recording, they enjoyed the show. So uh, the fact that we had, and that's the thing with a lot of these shows that, that I think we've, I've talked about before is that they were never intended to listen to repeatedly, you know, some of these people, these collectors, and and I love listening to shows repeatedly, but they were one and done shows, and they, these people are on, you know, the doors are on schedules, traveling across the country doing this. So the fact that we have a testament in in a in this this bootleg or uh, whatever you want to call it, this show released in audio form is just a is just an amazing thing that we're able to listen to. Yeah, they only taped three or four shows. And this was one of them. We're lucky, and I'll just conclude by saying I hope. We get like my fire in the end from real too. Because you know there's gonna be special moments. I never played like my fire the same way twice. And Jim would always um, include some great poetic improvisations in the end. You know, like it's singable, oh keeper of the royal sperm and all that. There were yeah. those moments. I'd love to hear what he did with those two songs at the end there. Well, and anybody listening to this episode has gotten lucky today because they have had a chance to listen to you, Michael Papasino, one of the uh, premier Doors collectors, somebody who who was, uh, I mean, you've been in it for a few decades, man, and, and that's real cool that I really appreciate your time coming on. You led the charge, man. You did. You put a lot of these notes together, and you really pushed this episode to happen, so I want to thank you for that, man. And before we get out of here, I just wanted to, I definitely wanted to plug your group, The Doors Undurable Pleasure Prolonged, uh, something you brought me in to help you out with, you know, uh, with moderating, which I do a poor job at sometimes just, just due to scheduling stuff, man. But I definitely think people need to check that out. And there's a different other groups. You mentioned them at the top of the show. Uh, the Ship of Fools group on Facebook is another great one. And, and I think Jim Morrison Global is another great one. But is there anything else you wanted to plug or anything else you want to say before you wrapped up? I would just say it's been an honor and a privilege to be with you again. You know, you inspired me to start the Doors Chat segments, which I want to do more on. And I hope to join you again at some point in the future because there are other things to talk about. Maybe we can do a segment later in the year when, you know, we finally get the Matrix Master Tapes, talk about the new tracks on there. There's always stuff to talk about. I get stuff in my collection to chat about it. And, you know, 
so many possibilities. You know, it's, I can go on forever. It's, you know, just can't shut me up about this band. It's a passion. It inspires me. Hey, and, and I think that's, that's a great note to end on, man, because I think anybody willing to listen to Doors podcast is, is passionate as well. So I hope everybody got out there, got something from this. Michael, thank you again, man, for joining me. I can't wait to have you on in the future. And yeah, man, I'll take you up on that offer to talk about the matrix tape. So I look forward to talking, but talking to you about that, man. Not too long. I think it's supposed to be next month. Yeah. I pre-ordered mine already. Yeah. Looking forward to those extra tracks. Yeah. Should be cool. I appreciate the opportunity, but it was great chatting with you. Glad we were able to put it together. You know, we'll keep in touch online and all, and I'm sure I'll see you again soon. Sounds great, man. Thank you again to Michael Papasino. You can find more of his collection by searching for his group on Facebook, The Doors, Unendurable Pleasure Prolonged. You can find this podcast on Twitter, at The Doors Pod, and on Facebook by searching for Opening The Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined and The Last Stage. Music for this podcast was done by Christian Cornejo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. I hope to meet you back here in two weeks, but until then, keep the doors open and the music loud.